0: a border emergency in Texas tonight as more than 9,500 migrants who have arrived.
1: Stick when you check out at the grocery store, a statewide ban on single-use plastic bags.
0: My question to him was just a moral one. Are you okay with a school next to a petrochemical facility?
2: Hey everyone, I'm really excited to be back to do this special interlude wrapping up season one of People Over Plastic. I wanna thank our listeners out there. Thank you so much for your notes, your emails, and for your smart questions that got me thinking. As part of my own reflection, I wanted to take a minute to step out of my activist booths and come at this episode with the stories behind the story. A few days ago, I had the privilege of chatting with some of the people I look up to and admire the most. They also happen to be the main characters in the Emmy award-winning documentary, The Story of Plastic. I'm your host, Shilpi Chotre, and this is the season finale of People Over Plastic. Let's hop over to Houston, Texas, right here in the United States. Yvette Arellano is one of the most fascinating people I've met over the years of doing this work. To be honest, I didn't know smack about what it actually meant to live in an oil and gas town like Houston until Yvette invited me on a toxic tour in their community. Basically, this meant we visited part of the 9.7 kilometers of Exxon's oil refinery next to the Houston ship channel. I will never forget this afternoon because it literally left me physically sick. Our paths have crossed on many occasions and our conversations always lead to the one underlying element we're trying to fight, industry corruption. This right here is the heartbeat of environmental racism. It is so critical we listen to and learn from those who are living in this daily reality where the concept of shelter in place is merely a privilege. Yvette is one of the foremost environmental justice campaigners working on this issue and recently founded the organization Fence Line Watch, which is dedicated to ending the multi-generational harm of communities living on the fence line of industry. Yvette, this question is more on the personal side of your work uh, because you can watch the story of Plastic to see some of the groundbreaking work that Yvette does in in their community in Houston. But, you know, I'd love to know what that moment was, sort of pre-activist, pre-campaigner, pre-frontline leader, where you started getting involved in these issues. To start off, my dad has been um,
0: a janitor for oil and gas my entire life. And so everything from carrying pencils and pens labeled with all sorts of branding from Chevron and Shell. Uh, it's always been a part of my life and I think that that's, the, that's a similar experience from anyone that lives in a oil and gas you know, town. It's that company culture, so you're consistently being hammered with this propaganda your entire life.
1: As long as Julie has a warm home, winter is a wonderful time. But the natural gas supply that's available now to heat Julie's home, and 42 million others in America, has been decreasing for several years. If we don't find ways to get more gas, we'll have a real problem.
0: You know, eventually, Things are going to show, right? There are going to be cracks in that narrative of prosperity, and that's something that that we lived with. You know, we were a two-income household, barely making it. Uh, my parents migrated from Mexico and, you know, looking for that brighter future, just like so many families do, uh, taking a dangerous journey, crossing a border, trying to establish themselves here in the, the U.S. Uh, I'm a proud Mexican-American person, and so seeing the destruction that fossil fuels has done to other countries, specifically Mexico, has really brought me into this work in a way I really didn't expect. And I think when we each get to a certain age, when we start thinking about a family, you never come to the question of, will I have that opportunity? in a state like Texas that has banned abortion, um, in a state that is struggling with high numbers of uninsured, including myself, uh, you know, where's the opposite of that narrative? Plastic, feedstocks, oil, gas, they're all cheap artificially because they're consistently feeding off of multiple layers of oppressions, right? So a lack of civil rights, a lack of health care, a lack of regulation. So, um, yeah, I mean, that that added an entire context to, to the work that I do, especially at this time in my life, uh, not having uh, the ability to choose to have a family.
2: Thank you so much for sharing that. I think what your storyline has in common with so many of the guests is that, It is such a multi-layered and complex struggle when environmental justice leaders work on this because they're facing so many other pieces of oppression when it comes to racial and social justice. This global lens, as as Yvette mentioned, it's, it's not just the US, it's Mexico, it's Asia, it's Africa, it's happening everywhere. Which leads me to the work of Tiza Mafira, my brilliant colleague based in Jakarta, Indonesia. I was introduced to Tiza early on in my work with Break Free From Plastic in 2017 and was astounded by her level of knowledge and dedication. Basically this woman, who, by the way, is also a parent, was taking on entire governments and industries to ban the plastic bag throughout Indonesian supermarkets. Through her organization, Plastic Bag Diet Movement, so cleverly coined, she works with governments, everyday people, and retailers to push a nationwide ban on plastic bags. I mean, I feel
3: like I should just take them here. I'm not saying anything, just take them here for for an hour.
2: There's this really powerful scene in Story of Plastic. It might be one of my favorites. It's of you showing the film crew what's happening in the Wong River, and there's plastic bags literally everywhere. It's suffocating this river, which probably was a source of drinking water at some point. I wonder, what does it feel like knowing, you know, your children will never see that river in a way you did when you were a child? It's completely destroyed.
3: It's the source of um, daily anxiety for me because, uh, um, well, now that you know the not just not just the plastic pollution that's visible, but also the climate crisis is also becoming very visible. With the climate crisis, there's no way to escape that. It's a planetary crisis, and these two are linked because uh, plastic comes from petrochemicals and oil. So. Um, it is a cause of daily anxiety because I have run, gone, you know, th- run through my head the options of what happens in a three-degree warming world that's going to happen in the next thirty years. You know, my children will be what age by then?
2: I think this is actually a good segue because petrochemicals isn't talked about enough. The climate piece is absolutely not talked about enough. I think, you know, we as a movement, as a collective that are really putting our BIPOC voices at the forefront, we're saying we absolutely have to center this. But the headlines are being missed left and right. I'm still seeing bullshit about let's clean up the ocean. So this next uh, question, Yvette, is, is for you. I had lunch with a good friend of mine today in Oakland. And I told her, I said, you know, plastic comes from fossil fuels. And... She had no idea, actually. And I remember being in meetings with you when you were making the opposite connection. You were saying, you know, she be, I didn't realize when I started on this issue that the output of the petrochemicals I'm fighting so hard against are the plastic straws, are the plastic bags, are the cups. What do you tell people what their next step can be when they start making this intersectional connection?
0: So I've had this conversation actually with... Uh, guys who work in the industry, who work in the refineries and plants, and it's a hard one. Pre-COVID, I remember sitting next to this one guy, and we were going back and forth because he worked for oil and gas, and my question to him was just a moral one. Are you okay with a school next to a petrochemical facility? And at that point that really puts people's view into perspective. Like they're like, no, that's ridiculous. I would never well that exists and it's here. You know, and there are no protections against it. And whether um you can or can't, you know, relate to a school, put any other piece of infrastructure there, put a home, put a senior center, put a school, put your church here, and are you okay with it? Um, but to your question over what do I tell people their next step should be is to find that one piece of annoying plastic that you're like, why, why do I even buy this?
2: I do think we need to get to a point collectively, though, where we are addressing our personal consumption, but we're also addressing the systems and I know not everyone can get involved at the policy level or the corporate level but everyone can get on Twitter and say hey I like your product but I hate your packaging and I think we that corporate accountability that brand accountability piece is is so important and Vaughn that kind of leads me to my next question which is which I think you're really the best suited to answer You know, I had, I think I told you, I had an important conversation with Freud in episode two of People Over Plastic, which is called, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu.
1: In good intentions, you might be putting your waste in a recycling bin, thinking that you're doing good. But what actually happens is that all of this uh, quote-unquote recycling is just waste being sent into uh, third world countries, you know, so... For, for us, it is a reflection of what you think of us that we are less voluble, that we we, we have less dignity because if if people view us um, in an equal sense, you know like how could you imagine sending your waste to another place?
2: Vaughn Hernandez he is the global coordinator for the Break free from plastic movement based in Manila Philippines. Vaughn is one of Asia's leading environmental activists and made history in 1999, when he helped make the Philippines the first country to ban waste incineration. I'd love to know from your perspective, what absolutely needs to happen to stop this type of environmental racism?
1: We've heard uh, in many years that uh, Asian countries are the culprits for this problem, that we're the ones uh, contributing uh, to the massive uh, pollution in the oceans out there, uh, ignoring the fact you know that a lot of the plastic that ends up in the oceans are actually produced by uh, multinational companies. You know, it ignores the fact that uh, uh, a lot of the waste uh, coming from the United States, coming from Europe, uh, Australia, are also ending up in 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 Asia. I mean, that's again part of the industry play how they how yes. they shape this narrative around the plastic, that it's about us, right, when actually it's also about changing the system, it's about changing their system, right? because it's that system that's really uh, perpetrated and has given us to this point of, uh, you know, not only plastic pollution crisis, but also climate emergency.
2: Thank you, Vaughn. We have talked a bit about industry and corporate corruption, and I think governments have a big role to play um, in terms of the political corruption that happens at all levels in society, really. Tiza, I spoke with two incredible women fighting plastic bags, in addition to you, um, on episode four of the show. uh, Gloria Majiga Komodo, who's from Blantyre, Malawi. And of course, we all know Trisha Cortez, A common thread, like I said, was this industry and political corruption. It's it's actually probably my favorite episode of the season. Um, But they also spoke about often being the only women in the room. Um, And I want to know what it's like working in such a high profile position as yourself in Indonesia. Talk to us about that.
3: Yeah, I've definitely had situations where I'm the only female in the room. Um, and one of the highlights that I, I don't think I'll ever forget is uh, that one day I was invited to the parliament. Um, the plastic bag bands were taking off across uh, different cities. And I didn't know this at the time, but they also invited um, industry representatives. Um, so when I got there, the invitation for one industry representative turned into 10 industry representatives. Um, They had just decided to invite themselves. Um, And so there were 10 men uh, from the petrochemical and plastics and recycling industries. And just myself, because I hadn't thought, you know, (laughs) to bring anyone. But also (laughs) I thought it was going to be a chill conversation. Um, It was anything but chill. I was also pregnant at the time. So I was like maybe six months pregnant. I made my case that these are good. You know, the plastic bag bands are good. And the industry representatives kept on consistently saying that I know nothing about the issue. I don't know anything about plastics or recycling and that every type of plastic can be recycled, you know. So we went on and on about you know how they went on and on about how oh this is good for the economy this is how many workers employed you know and everything can be recycled there just needs to be more capital for it and so at the end of the day I said I'll do my part I'll stop the tap you do your part you clean up the planet Uh, and that basically concluded the meeting
2: Because we've talked about the plastic bag and petroleum industry a lot, I, I think a fun fact for people might be, and Vaughn, correct me if I'm wrong, because I learned this from you, but Exxon created the plastic bag, right? In, was it the 70s?
1: Maybe the 50s. It was
3: commercialized in the 70s, yeah. But it was, yeah, it was, it was invented about in the, in
0: the 50s. I just hear ExxonMobil and I'm looking down the street. Yeah. <laughs>
2: We see all these headlines that have nothing to do with systemic change. What do you want people to remember?
3: People are so smart. We can actually design things to, be, to go around and round, to have reuse, reusability, infinitely. Um, we can design our entire economic system to mimic the, the cyclicality of nature, right? The circularity of nature.
2: Um, But we're not getting there fast enough. We need to get there now. Well, industry is going to do everything they can to divert from long-lasting systems change because at the end of the day, it impacts their bottom line.
1: The very solution they're promoting is undermined by their plans to expand uh, plastic production, right? Because uh, uh, recycling definitely cannot catch up with more production of plastic, and the public is being sold this uh, uh, yeah. idea that has already failed. You know, uh, uh, Industry had 70 years, I mean, since the 1950s, uh, to come up with a design solution to this problem, and they have failed miserably. They've taken everyone with them, you know, uh, and we've all participated, we've celebrated. We, we as activists, uh, even I, uh, bought into the idea that, you know, recycling is going to solve this problem. When it comes to plastics, unfortunately, it's all been a sham, right? Yeah. It's mostly been a sham. Not to say that all recycling is bad. There is uh, effective recycling that's taking place, but right now it's uh, it cannot compete uh, with too much production of plastic.
2: A recycling rate of 9% is nothing to be proud of, <laughs> you know? So it's simply not working. We need to get to the point where... Any low-value plastic packaging is simply not produced. It needs to be illegal because of the impacts it causes when it's produced and the end of life.
3: Whenever you're, you're being given information that this is a solution, here's a tip. Think about whether that solution will decrease fossil fuel production. And if it doesn't, then it's a false solution. Because at the end of the day, if we truly move into a sustainable circular economy, everything's recycled, everything's reused, there won't be any oil companies, okay? That's a hard fact that we
0: all need to understand right now. You know, so many industries coming together and saying, let's rake the ocean free of plastic. You know, that's ridiculous. We can't buy more clean air. We can't buy more clean water. Being from an oil and gas city, uh, I can tell you the environmental degradation here is irreversible. It's done.
2: In April, a federal judge ordered Exxon to pay nearly $20 million in penalties for releasing about 10 million pounds of toxic substances, like benzene. Meanwhile, authorities have evacuated homes near a chemical plant in Crosby, Texas, over fears the plant could explode.
0: How am I going to put my trust? in a petrochemical facility that, you know, that denied climate change like ExxonMobil, you know, fueled, I didn't even know about the creation of the plastic bag coming from them, you know, and then they're over here building infrastructure, trying to prep for severe climate change. I mean, ultimately oil and gas is looking for another lifeline manufacturing things like plastic keep industry afloat it's the second largest consuming sector of petrochemicals we can do better we can't put our trust in petrochemicals um they're not going to save the future i i agree with tiz on so many things that you said can't buy our way out ultimately if there's an option that doesn't involve fossil fuels that's the way to go
2: what can we do as an audience that supports environmental justice leaders? You know,
0: right now we're getting polluted for free, completely for free. If we're looking at creating large systemic change, we have to look at the rules that are, we're being governed by. And if those rules are skewed and we're mad at how the system works, guess what? We need to change those rules any way possible. We need to become active. Well, to introduce myself, my name is Yvette Ariano, and I am the founder and director of Fence Line Watch, an environmental justice organization based in Houston, Texas, home of the largest petrochemical complex in the entire nation with over 235 facilities dedicated to plastics, dedicated to single use. Dedicated to this pandemic, where people are grub hubbing and Amazon priming packages to their front door without thinking. So, if we ask them to stop extracting here, are we going to ask them to move somewhere else? No. Not here, not anywhere, not here, not and in, in states like you know, Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, where you know we have. Uh, massive oppression when it comes to voting and so on. Um our our whole you know this sounds crummy. Uh but people don't know what's happening to us right? I didn't know what was going on with, you know, Tisa and the river. I didn't know what was going on over with Vaughn. And it wasn't until we started talking and sharing stories about, you know, what the reality is about plastic pollution and how it affects us. And here I was not even knowing that oil was
2: connected to plastic.
0: I don't know where I thought plastic came from, a magic plastic tree.
2: We all have that plastic as oil reckoning at some moment, right? And then it's like you never can really look back.
0: If this administration were to do any radical change, by the way, living plastic-free is not radical, you know, it's normal. Um, What's weird is using so much plastic. Anyway, declaring a climate emergency would give us the ability to say no more offshore oil drilling off of our coasts. You know, it would give us the ability to say no more exports. When did we become a country that is fueling plastics from afar? And it's just one decision that has to go through, declare climate emergency. We've seen the other side do extreme things. This is an extreme mode of survival. So if he can do anything, how about just let's turn off the tap? Let's no new plastic, no new plastics infrastructure.
2: Powerful, Yvette. I mean, meanwhile millions are being poured into things like ocean cleanup so there is a fundamental disconnect and when millions are being poured into projects like ocean cleanup legislators in dc see this and then they put together like save our seas 2.0 i need to talk about the role of policy here laws like save our seas is a stark example of government corruption and industry greenwash Right now, U.S. senators are putting tons of money and resources into laws focused on cleaning up the ocean rather than stopping the production of plastic. This is critically flawed because essentially it gives a license to corporations and the oil industry to keep producing plastic as the status quo. It's also why many of my colleagues have rallied around the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act to introduce bold federal legislation. What's incredibly frustrating is people may have really good intentions of donating to organizations that they think are stopping the problem, but unfortunately, they're perpetuating the greenwash by being in bed with industry behind the scenes. Here's a tip, always check who's funding NGOs. If you see them backed by corporate polluters, please think twice.
0: there are white organizations that do conservation work that don't want to do race related work and they don't want to touch environmental justice front lines groups they don't they say we don't do international work you know um, no get over that it's toxic and what it does is keep the status quo alive the fossil fuel industry will continue concentrated in low people of color communities that don't speak English.
1: What I would call twin uh, crisis of our times: climate change and plastic pollution, both anyway uh, being spawned by the same parent the addiction, yeah. addiction, addiction to, <laughs> to fossil fuels. Uh, we need to focus on uh, confronting expansion of petrochemical, and that's correct. We need to choke the supply. Otherwise, uh, sup- the supply will paint the uh, future or how the future would look like for all of us, right? And yeah. we need to uh, uh, work together to really challenge uh, and reshape the story.
3: And to choke, to choke the supply, there's a number of things that need to happen spontaneously. I mean, I know like people want to do something, but aren't always as courageous as event, you know working on the front lines directly against the petrochemical industry. Uh, the fossil fuel industries are supported by so many, so many layers of support that they don't deserve. Um, not only do they get a lot of financing, just commercial financing from banks and you know, but they're also getting a lot of subsidies from governments. If you don't want to go directly to the petrochemical industry, you could go directly to the banks, you could go directly to the government to say stop financing the fossil fuel industry, let them
0: die off. Not every government or country is open to the idea of combating plastic or fossil fuels. Um, So we we sit in a fortunate space, you know, in the US, if you're in the US listening to the podcast and sit in a seat of privilege where we can pressure our governments, local officials, uh, even healthcare community. uh, There aren't many wins in in fossil fuels or petrochem fights uh, that I see. So plastic has definitely opened up a way Uh, for that kind of change to happen.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I do want to mention that Formosa Plastic has been a major win in terms of stalling the permitting, um, largely because of of Ms. Sharon Levine's activism on the ground and all the support from the movement and, and media and really amplifying that piece of it.
1: When the governor announced it in the spring of 2018, I was in my classroom teaching.
2: That's when Sharon Levine learned that a $9 billion chemical plant was planned less than
0: two miles from her St. James home. Just something happened inside of me. I was angry. I
1: felt so hopeless that we had to move.
2: In May 2019, Miss Sharon rallied 100 organizers in a march to save the lives in Cancer Alley over a five-day period. This is what she can remember from that march.
0: Well, we, we marched and we chant and we said, keep the oil in the ground, and we said, not profit over people. We got on the bull's horn, and we sung. Victory today is mine.
3: If they die off, that means they were never meant to survive in the first place. They're only surviving because of these, you know, the life support, the massive life support that they've been receiving from taxpayers' money and, and money that people put in their savings accounts so everything goes back to this decades-long lifeline of support that's been provided by the fossil fuel industry they've been polluting the planet not just for free but for a profit right
2: and that's a wrap i just want to thank you all for taking the time to listen to season one of our podcast the whole team at People Over Plastic are pumped to be building this community that's dedicated to shifting the way we view plastic. If you had a light bulb moment while listening to any of our episodes, please let me know. My DMs are open on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to follow along at PeopleXPlastic. You can also subscribe on all podcast platforms to stay tuned to our Season 2 drop. We know there's no shortage of podcasts to listen to, and we're so grateful you stopped by ours. I'm your host, Shilpi Chotray, and this is People Over Plastic.